Hey, podcast listeners, it is Michael Shelley here. This is a podcast today with two interviews with Harry Shearer. I interviewed him two years ago. He was in town for a similar event, and uh, it was good. We talked about his whole life, and I really enjoyed it. It was one of the ones that... Uh, that folks always ask me about or tell me they liked, you know, commenting. It's a lot of people's, one of their favorites of, of my interview. So it's a good time to rerun it since I spoke to him again this morning. So first we're going to hear this morning's podcast, and then we're going to hear the one from two years ago. There's a teeny bit of overlap. He does a great impression of uh, Dick Clark, American, recently deceased DJ and television host, ubiquitous guy was everywhere had a lot of money uh and i'm just obsessed with it and i once he started answering it today's program i i remembered the answer from last time because i didn't have a chance to go back and listen which i, I usually try to do when i interview someone a second time is uh, listen to the first one so i don't duplicate it but anyway in any case I asked him about mostly new stuff. So you're going to hear these two interviews with very interesting Harry Shearer. Don't forget uh, to buy his new record and go see his tour. It's all explained here in this podcast. Some great stuff coming up. WFMU.org slash Michael's the place to find out about it. Hope your Thanksgiving was good. Hope your Christmas is great. And I uh, will talk to you again soon. All right, Harry Shearer, folks, actor, writer, musician, radio host, filmmaker. He was a guest on this program in 2012. And if you want to hear his whole life story, head over to WFMU.org slash Michael, and you can listen to that whole program. It's one that folks still come up to me and ask me about, talk to me about. Uh, fascinating guy, fascinating life. So today we're not going to tell his whole life story. We're going to talk about uh, why he is coming to Brooklyn December 1st uh, to BAM. For the Christmas Without Tears tour, he's got an EP of the same name coming out with his wife, Judith Owen, and we'll talk about a few other things. Hopefully, we welcome back to the program, Harry Shearer. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. I'm uh, in New Orleans. Just had a New Orleans breakfast with a bunch of our friends, uh, you know, still in the post-Thanksgiving haze period, but we're doing great. That's very nice. Yeah, I was just in New Orleans for the Ponderosa Stomp last month, and I always, I mean, I always love it there. I envy you, and I, 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 I kind of kept my eye out for you, hoping I would see you, you know, buying... I wasn't there during the Stomp. Uh, I came in for Thanksgiving. Uh, they have a, a great Thanksgiving tradition here. Uh, <laughs> it used to be opening day at the racetrack. <laughs> I think the track now opens a few days earlier, but people still go on Thanksgiving Day, dress up as if it's Mardi Gras, and it's just such a bizarre and wonderful event, and then you go off to have your dinner after the, after you see a few races. My dad used to take me to the track way, way, way too much. <laughs> Hollywood Park in Santa Anita. So oh, let's, let's talk about, uh, um, since you're from New Orleans, we had uh, Alan Toussaint as a guest on this program once. Did you ever cross paths with him? Yes, uh, many's the time. I had him as a guest on my radio show in 2008, and, you know, one would see Alan all the time uh, at various events, and I I actually, uh, one of my friends here at breakfast this morning, and I had shared the experience of having seen Alan in, uh, I think it was late August, when the Orpheum Theater, a uh, beautiful landmark theater in New Orleans, which had stayed closed for 10 years following the flood, had its gala reopening, and Alan played at the opening party. And uh, we both had the same experience in different ways. Uh, it's a, it, it's sort of a strategic error 
to fill people with a lot of free drinks and then have a guy with a solo piano uh, come on stage and perform. <laughs> because uh, I, she was frustrated, I was frustrated because everybody was talking, and here was the legendary Alan. So she went to the monitor board, to the sound uh, mixer, to be by the monitors, and I went right up to next to his piano to hear him. Uh, but it was yeah the last time I heard him play. Huh, that's unbelievable. I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about Alan Toussaint the whole show, but I mean, after he died, and I, I listened back to the interview that I did with him, and I realized I really did not. I mean, it was a gr- I loved the interview, but I realized I did not get any real feeling for what this guy was, you know, inside the suit. Uh, you know, musically, yes, but as a human being, I, I felt like he was pretty c- tightly held. He's he look he he uh, like. Many people in the public eye, uh, and I, I, I say this uh, with undimmed admiration for the remarkable range and persistence of his gift. Um, but a lot of people in the public eye have, have uh, as all of us do, have more than one thing going on. Uh, I think people in New Orleans are more used to the notion of uh, separate lives inside one body than maybe in the rest of the country. <laughs> but in any case, that was definitely true of Alan. And, uh, you know, you have to talk to musicians to start hearing uh, more of those stories uh, about him, and then you you sort of get a, a more rounded picture. But, I mean, his his public persona was so effort, effortless and graceful and elegant that it was it's sort of hard to uh, want to see anything else mm. well i think sort of you know the for me it's always the love of whatever the work is that makes me wonder well who comes up with that and why it's never you know i don't care about the kardashians because they've never done anything interesting mm-hmm. you know so it always comes out of trying to get a window into that but sometimes that can also ruin your your thing once you found out the real once you know that wagner's a nazi <laughs> right exactly yeah. Yeah. um there's a wonderful piece in this week's i think it's this week's new yorker uh I think it's the writer. The writer is from here, and, and she it's an appreciation of of what she uh, apprehends coming through the the breadth of Alan's work, which she describes as uh, sort of an ineffable gladness uh, or joy, joy in discovery. Um, so there's a, there's something going on there that that persists through all these different styles and all these different eras and all these pe- different people that he that he's worked with, and that's I think what she pinpoints. She doesn't know enough about the man's biography to know where that comes from, which goes to your question, but it, it, it points to something that's sort of a consistent thread throughout his work. I, I agree, and his, it, it just all sounds like him all throughout his whole career, you know, mm-hmm. m- more than Carole King or some other great American songwriters. There's so there's so much him. Okay, let's talk about the election. Uh, one thing that uh, I've had happen to me a couple times in the past couple months is people from other countries have said to me, what... <laughs> What is it? What's happening? You know, what are, what's wrong with you people? I mean, they literally just don't understand it at all. Well, look, I, I think as I, I've spent a lot of my last three years in, in England working on TV and, and on stage there, and, and yes, it, it adds to the list of what is with you people that, you know, the, the, the requisite monthly uh, public shootings that go on in this country is, is sort of at the top of that list, but now I think it's being edged away, edged out by the... Uh, the spectacle of of our democracy in action. Um, I have this theory that um, you can explain the Donald Trump phenomenon much more easily than than most people in the D.C. New York media access achieve with trying to all these torturous explanations of why he hasn't flamed out yet, despite saying things that are you know absolutely outrageous, like the the performance he gave this week, uh, imitating a uh, 
a journalist with a congenital joint disease. That's nice. That's nice in a president. Yeah. But um, my theory is simply that it, it, it's exactly the same thing that made a huge number of Americans pay uh, obsessive attention day in and day out to a highly boring murder trial 20 years ago. Uh, it was celebrity that made people watch the O.J. trial, and it's celebrity that makes Trump the, the figure that he is today. So he's, he's the O.J. of presidential candidates, and I, I do believe that in the highly unlikely event that were he to be elected, the first thing he would do would be to launch a search for the real president. <laughs> the best search, though. Yeah, the, oh, the very best search in the world. <laughs> yeah, we'll get the experts. We'll get Carl Icahn on the search. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm naive, but I, the, I just think there's no way. I mean, all of this press coverage, he will, he would never be elected dog catcher. But maybe I'm wrong. I, maybe I'm really wrong. I don't know. Well, you know, it's 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 odd because rarely are we treated to the spectacle of somebody who's never been elected to as much as dog catcher running for the highest elected office in the country. So, yeah, that, that, that's a head-scratcher to begin with. And then could, could this possibly happen when he seems hell-bent on saying something to offend another group of people every <laughs> week and a half? Yeah. Uh, that, that adds to the bewilderment. Um, and that's why I think that the only real, you know, it's, it gets back to your talking about the Kardashians. Celebrity trumps everything. Sorry, par- pardon the use of the of the of the uh, name as a as a verb, but you know uh, it trumps. Hey, they've never accomplished anything, or it trumps. He's an absolute buffoon, and and is like America's id. You know, it's like a he's a truth teller, like a five year old child is a truth teller. You know, <laughs> mommy, that woman's legs are fat. That's the kind of truth teller he is. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, he deserves nothing for for doing that. Yeah, yeah, he deserves you know to go to bed without dinner. Um, but it's it's um, and I do blame uh, to an extent the New York media, which over the last twenty to twenty five years took a local loudmouth and turned him into a national figure. You know, all those magazine covers that he was on in the nineties were uh, you know because editors in New York were transfixed with the local loudmouth who if he had been in cleveland would have gotten not a a, a soup song of national attention hmm. uh well I, I should point out that he was a guest on your radio show just a couple weeks ago <laughs> he was a guest on my radio show yeah. last week yeah how long you, you've been hosting this radio show in one form or another called Le show for how long uh we're coming up on the 32nd anniversary that's a lot of the shows yeah, yeah it is and especially since um i i really do once one a week throughout the year so yeah, wow! It's yeah, a, it's there's a, no, there's no break. But there's the money. You got that. <laughs> there is the public radio money, which you know all about. I know all about it at WFMU. Uh, let me. I want to talk about a concept which I think you can grasp: the idea of trying to be funny to an audience who's loves you too much. You know, and I think that's become a a different thing. You know, from the days of Freddie Roman and stuff. There's kind of a new Freddie Roman. There's a sort of a you new, you you bring up Freddie Roman. Well, Freddie Roman, a funny guy who came out and told jokes, but now we sort of have a kind of a newer wave of comedy where part of I think what attracts the audience is that it is in fact a newer wave, and they self-identify with these people on stage, and so just. Just being there and self-identifying w- with the performer is part of the interaction, and and so there's less. Well, I, I I would say two things. One, remind me to tell you my Freddie Roman story. <laughs> two, <laughs> um, I think that began when David Letterman um, moved 
to CBS at 11.30. 11, sorry, 11.35. Um, I noticed that on his old show, during his monologue, uh, he would tell jokes and people would laugh. Or not. Uh, but laughter was the desired response. And something happened. I don't know if it was right away or if it was soon into the run at, at, uh, on CBS. But he would tell a joke and people would applaud. Hmm. They wouldn't laugh. They'd clap as if, hey, we're all members of the club. We all understand this. And that was my first sign that something strange was going on, that this was now uh, in the same way that people, you know, like to go to rock and roll shows and sing along to the, the hits, that there were, you know, things that a comedian would do that would just stimulate that kind of reaction as opposed to laughter, and that that may be turned into what they were seeking. I don't know if that was... Yeah, I, I, I think you put your finger exactly on it. It's, it I think you're right. The, the idea of, of just laughing as opposed to hooting or asserting agreement with the, the joke. Yeah, yeah, or, or com, you know, common membership in the tribe that gets the joke. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Now... That's not saying that there aren't some really funny comedians, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. They're never, they're never not going to be. Now, Freddie Roman. Yeah. I did not witness this myself, but uh, two friends, one of whom uh, was uh, in the organization of the aforementioned Mr. Letterman, uh, swear that this happened. It was in Palm Springs. They went to see Freddie Roman, because, as you do, you know. Why not? If you're in, in Rome, Springs. yeah. And you know there's this Vegas tradition that a uh, performer will, on the stage, from the stage, acknowledge the presence of celebrities who happen to be in the room. Right. Don Rickles does it every night, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's great. So, but you have to kind of be careful, apparently, sometimes, because Freddie Roman was introducing a, uh, a prominent boxer of the era and then realized uh, that some of the people at the table sitting with the boxer were uh, people who probably, because of their organized activities, uh, might not want to to have themselves pointed out to, to the public. <laughs> Put the spotlight so over there. Said. Got you, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please join me in welcoming and, and, and acknowledging the presence of the great Mr. Jerry Quarry and some nice people doing nice things. <laughs> <laughs> that was his saver. <laughs> there you go. That's how he saved his knees <laughs> that night. Very nice. Well, it worked. He still it worked. Yeah, uh, I just saw the 1953 movie Abbott and Costello go to Mars. <laughs> You're in the movie in the very beginning ish yes. of the movie, and you have a scene with Lou Costello. This is sort of towards the end. I mean, they were the biggest movie stars in the world in the early 1940s. Literally, uh, this is not. They're still huge stars, but this mm -hmm. is slightly towards the end. Uh, nice guy. What you know? Tell me about him and working. You know, it was a day's work. I was a kid. I'd, I'd, I'd been working uh, for Jack Benny, so that was my sort of standard of how, how to be treated. And, you know, um, but Benny, I worked, I'd, I'd been working for for a while by that point. Uh, Lou Costello, I was there for a day. You know, I did one scene with him. I, I don't have any really strong sense of how, you know, he was perfectly fine in the scene, but he didn't go out of his way, nor should he have... Uh, so it, it wasn't a, a very strong kind of experience. It was just fun to be in a scene with Lou Costello and, sure. and to say the same line over and over again in different <laughs> ways. You know, it was like, that's an acting exercise. Yeah. You know? uh, what's the best TV show of all time? You're talking comedy? Any period. 
But comedy? Any kind of television. Really? Yeah, sure. So, Meet the Press would be included? If it's your favorite. If you no. think it's the best. Um, no, the Twilight Zone would be included, sir. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Well, I'd have to say Bilko. Bilko. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it makes yeah. it still funny. Because I think there's never been, I mean, you know, Honeymooners is great. Dick Van Dyke show is great. Um, a lot of more modern shows are great. But I think top to bottom, there's never been a, a better, more complete cast of unbelievably funny people mm. from star to, you know, smallest part. Yeah, and there's a slight surrealism that's in that show, you know? Oh, a little more than slight, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, it just occurred to me that I believe you co-wrote Real Life with Albert Brooks, which is sort of like you started reality television. Yeah, we did. <laughs> no, we started making fun of reality. Reality television was started by um, An American Family, which we were um, doing a takeoff on. It was a, a series on PBS that, that followed... Uh, the Loud family, who were at, at the time, if you said that, uh, you'd get laughs. Uh, a, a family that uh, was mainly noted uh, at, the, at that period for having a, their son come out as gay during the filming of the show. Yeah, Lance Loud. Lance Loud. Or as Tom Brokaw was there, Lance Loud. <laughs> and uh, so we, we just took that concept of like a guy moving in with a family to document their life and, and turned it into comedy where he moves in and then kind of disrupts their life and they kick him out. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's where that started. Yeah, lo- love that movie. I want to remind everybody, Harry Shearer is our guest. HarryShearer.com is his website. He's coming to Brooklyn for the Christmas Without Tears tours, along with his wife, Judith Owen, and an, literally an all-star cast. It's Tuesday, December 1st, 7.30. Yeah, uh, Paul Schaefer is going to be there. <laughs> Bela Fleck. I mean, the, the chance to see Bela, see and hear Bela Fleck, the, one of the world's premier uh, banjoists. Uh, he's just an astonishing musician. Yeah, I've seen him. He's good, yeah. Oh, my God. And there's a whole bunch of people, funny people. Fred Willard will tell the true story of Christmas. And I will be premiering my, uh, my holiday song. I write one every year. This one's called Christmas a la Trump. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah, uh, did Paul Schaefer grow a beard? That's the question, right? Uh, Has he? I don't know. It just seems like what you do once you... Oh, yeah, I mean Al Gore style? <laughs> well, as soon as you get out, the, the minute they turn the, the spotlight Lights off, off you, yeah. you stop shaving. Uh, Artie Lang, Peter Asher, Alan Cumming, uh, Bella Fleck, Olympia Dukakis, on and on and on. Uh, folks can go over to the BAM website, or I think there's links from, from your website. And you're also going to be in Evanston, Illinois, and Largo, and then in New Orleans with this little tour, so folks... Uh, who live there should should check. Yeah, out. and in each city, it's different. It's different folks because we we tend to pick you know p- people who are friends or people we know in each city to make it a more of a party and less of a touring show. Yeah, uh, I just watched a little bit of Fernwood tonight. Which oh wow, how long did you write uh, on that show? Because one of the things I did not realize, and I was a little boy when it came out, and I I was a little boy when I worked on it. <laughs> I liked it, but I didn't maybe understand what it was parodying as oh. much. Yeah, but it was still I, it was still better than television. <laughs> you know, but one thing that I did should have been its slogan. Uh, better than what a great <laughs> slogan for that show. It, better what, than television. One of the things I didn't realize there's only uh, 65 episodes and then 65 of America tonight, and that's it. And and produced by Alan Thicke, which produced by Alan Thicke. I want to tell you a little bit about Alan Thicke. <laughs> but uh, first of all, you know the IRS can come and uh, attach your money. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, it was it was one of the when it use your word surreal uh, things about Fernwood tonight was that it was a, a highly satirical show. Fred, uh, Martin Mull was the star. He was spinning off of uh, then 
sort of subversive uh, soap opera, nighttime soap opera called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which was produced by Norman Lear. And um, I guess somebody around Norman or Norman got this idea for a... Um, the, the, the soap opera took place in this very small town of Fernwood, Ohio. And so the idea was that this character, uh, Barth Gimble, uh, a very full-of-himself kind of egotist, narcissist guy, um, hosted a, uh, a Johnny Carson-style Tonight Show, but on the budget of a, of a show in Fernwood, Ohio. So it was a, the lowest-budget sort of way, uh, approximation of a big-time talk show, big-time late-night talk show. And so there was a, a tiny little band and an announcer who was more confused than your Aunt Millie <laughs> and uh, guests that were just totally bizarre kind of creatures from this town. The great Kenneth Mars was, was one of the regular guests. And a really great troupe of, of very funny people came in as guests. And, uh, then, they, and then Norman hired Alan Thicke to produce the show, <laughs> which was just such a bizarre choice because Alan had been... Uh, producer of very mainstream kind of music shows in Canada. As a matter of fact, he was uh, commuting from this satirical quasi-faux uh, talk show in L.A. to producing an, a very non-ironic, non-faux music series starring 18-year-old Canadian, you know, the would-be Justin Bieber of his time uh, from Montreal named René Simard. And Alan was jetting back and forth, but literally from Montreal to Los Angeles. And it just seemed to me like the most odd choice, but there we were. Yeah, but I, I mean, but I did get a great Ellen Thick impression out of it, so everything is resented. Let's talk about impersonations. You did an impersonation of Dick Clark on uh, one of your albums. <laughs> yeah, which I, I, to me, I just the idea of it is is funny, but it's it's so perfect. And I, how does it? You know, do you just have to listen over and over? Does it? Ju- do you just start doing it? Uh, loathing helps a lot. <laughs> the motivation is loathing. Loathing, yeah. Um, no, it, 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 that there's, there's, you know, there are two kinds of people who do, uh, who have the gift of mimicry, I think, in, in American show business. Those who want to be the guys they're doing, um, and I don't even need to mention names, but if you think of guys who've done Frank Sinatra and Bruce Springsteen impressions, or Muhammad Ali impressions, and you know, well, he really wants to be that guy. Mm. And then people who have some some critique, shall we say, about the people they're doing. Uh, and so, you know, I'd known about Dick Clark's, the only way, uh, Dick Clark was the only guy to escape uh, the payola scandals right. of the 19, late 1950s, and all these guys who were playing music on the radio and television uh, you know, Alan Freed in New York, uh, chief among them, were busted for taking money for pay- playing records on the air. Such an odd concept now. Who, God, who would think of that that would go on? And Dick Clark escaped, and you wonder why? Why did? Why did? Why was Dick uh, not uh, caught up in all this? He had this incredibly successful TV show that played records, American Bandstand. And I found out years later that. Supposedly, the, the answer is because he didn't take cash. He just took the publishing. Yes, he just took co-publishing. That's yeah. all. Yeah. And so there's, you know. But uh, people used to say, you know, you can't, you can't do Dick Clark. There's nothing there. There's no thing there. There's no hook to grab onto. I mean, he doesn't have a lisp. He doesn't have a speech impediment. He doesn't have a funny way of talking. He just had this remarkably well-modulated broadcasting style of his that uh, kept him young for all those years. <laughs> and I did him on ABC one night uh, on a show, a special I got a letter the next day uh, 
with the return address, Dick Clark Productions. And I opened it up, and it, had, it was a letter from Dick Clark saying, uh, I saw you doing, and he puts his own name in quotes, Dick Clark last night on this show, and it struck me you weren't really doing me. You were doing the guy that I grew up kind of modeling myself after. I don't know if this makes any sense at all. If it does, you can call me. We can talk about it. <laughs> and I called him up, and he said, did you understand that at all? And I said, yes, Arthur Godfrey. He said, oh, my God, yeah, that's right. Because I, I, uh, one key to me to being able to do, uh, certainly people in broadcasting, is to figure out who they're doing. Tom Snyder was doing Ed Murrow with a cigarette, you know? Hmm. So you figure out who this guy grew up watching, and it's a real key, key to, to kind of figuring out how to do them. Uh, that's but interesting. In answer to your question, I, you can either do them or you can't. I spent years trying to do Geraldo Rivera and failing. <laughs> But, you know, guys just pop into my head. That's you know. fine. You did a great Mike Wallace on Saturday Night Live. Perfect, really. That's, that's, yeah, this, but the Dick Clark one is one I just go back to over. I'm mildly obsessed by. Uh, the Simpsons has been on the air for like a thousand years. And when people write about it, they sort of write about it as if there are cycles to it. You know, this is, you know, it's, it's more focused on this as the staff shifts and grows up or grows down or whatever. What, where, what, what according to you, where, where, what stage is The Simpsons in right now? Um, that's that's really one I'm going to let let go right by. I'm okay. going to I'm going to I'm not going to swing at that one. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, well, people can Google you, The Simpsons, and no, I mean, you know, um, I'm in the process of of writing my very first script for The Simpsons. I'm watching the process from a totally different angle now as I see the drafts come by. Um, so it's 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 just now I'm having a whole new experience of the show than I've ever had before. So it's it's really, but we're about to do the reading of of that script this coming week. So I'm in the midst of a process, and I I can't even uh. be, begin to draw conclusions. How fun! Now, when you do that reading, do you sit? Uh, are you is everyone in the same room? Uh, classically, everyone's been in the same room, but now, you know, in the last fifteen years, Hank's done a lot of been doing a lot of movies and stage work, and I've been doing movies and stage work and you know, rock and roll tours and stuff. And so we tend to be on the phone um, and um, other people are still in the room. Have fun. Uh, uh, let's talk about Spinal Tap for a minute. It, it, why does this movie still, why does it still work to, uh, to people who, who don't, who, you know, just to everyone? Well, um, my opinion, for what it's worth, is that um, it works because it's, and I'm, I, this sounds incredibly pretentious to say it, so I'll say it. Um, it works because it's true, uh, because we didn't make shit up. Um, oh, can I say that on FMU? No, I don't think so. I bleeped you, I think. Okay. Um, sorry. That's sorry, okay. I thought I was online for a minute. Um, because everything that we, we wrote about in that film had happened either to one of us or to people we knew in the, in the rock and roll world. I mean, the getting lost on the way to the stage happened to me on the way to see a friend of mine who was managing the Grateful Dead, and he invited me to see them at Madison Square Garden. And, and I you know, was circling the inner rings of Madison Square Garden, opened the wrong door, and I was in what was called then the Felt Forum, watching two lightweights <laughs> boxing. And I told that story, and that became... Um, and, and our original piano player, uh, keyboard player, had to leave us before we made the film, went on the road with Uriah Heep, came back, and we said, what was that like? And he told us the story of performing at an Air Force base. So, I mean, we were not um, doing, you know what would be funny if, 
It was things that really had happened. And, and the truth of, you know, it's great to get up on stage and play even mediocre music, but it's almost a death sentence the other 22 hours of the day. <laughs> and so that, that, that's true not just of that kind of band. You know, we picked that particular kind of band because it, it made us laugh. But we have guys from, from classical orchestras and guys from country bands who say we, we take that movie on the bus with us because it speaks to that thing of you go through all this crap for the 22 hours of the day because the thing you just can't help yourself from loving doing, uh, get, you get to do that for two hours or three hours a night. And that is common to the musical life in any era of this present moment and so um i think that and you know there was a great cast i mean the, the the people that we had in that movie have gone on to bigger careers since then you know well known they were all great then they're great now uh we were uh careful and lucky to, enough to have the right people in the film and um you know and then we we had when we sat down to write the script the first draft script we had the we didn't set out to do an improv movie. We were, you know, three days into writing a script for it and just looked at each other and went, you know, this isn't the way to do this. And so the sense of an improvisational movie, I think, uh, happened organically because it was the best way to tell that story. And, you know, now it's become, I, I, I get asked, well, you know, uh, what do you think about this where fly on the wall is the way every sitcom is shot, and it's just you know, well, who's who's got the camera? Why are they there? You know, we had a character who had the cameras, and you knew why he was shooting it because he adored, for God knows what reason, he adored this band. Um, now it's just become another technique, yeah. a motivationalist technique. One of the great successes of the film is that the characters are completely empathetic. You feel for them. You know, it's a it's a comedy, but it's not without some heart. And I think that is not the saving grace of the movie, but that is you know that that's maybe one why reason why it is a perpetual. Well, they're you know they're not evil people. They're kind of hapless. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I mean, probably the the as a personality type, the worst person in the movie is Bobby Fleckman. But she's okay. I mean, she's fairly benign, too. The publicist. Yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, if you had to deal with her on a daily basis, you might want to strangle her after about two months. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, do I, am I right to assume that you own a piece of that movie? Well, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> you own it, but own it's worth In the sense that it, we, we uh, the four of us made it and, and owned the production company that made it, uh, owned not in the sense that we've derived royalties or profits from it um that's a complicated thing which zero huh zero yeah kind of kind of zero but um you know i i have to say about the, you, you saying going back to you saying these are, are uh empathic or empathetic characters um for years i would uh be touring one thing or another doing one thing or another and uh would run into promo men record promotion men in different cities around the country, who would say, you know, I'm kind of like the Artie Fuskin of the Northwest. <laughs> As if that was a good thing. Right. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Very proud of you. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, yes, sir, I think we talked about this last time, but I can't remember the answer, and somebody on the message boards wants to know, have you seen The Day the Clown Cried? Yes. 
You've seen it. But I, Jerry says it doesn't exist. No one's seen it. He's wrong? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, it doesn't exist in finished form. I saw a rough, uh, a, a rough cut with a temp uh, music track. But So there's enough that the day he dies, his wife can go into a safe somewhere and release a DVD of something we'd all know it as... Has, a- it, it has beginning and middle and end. Yeah. It's, it's uh, basically a, a, a fairly... You know, it's, when I say rough cut, it's about the length that, the, that a feature would be. So it's not a sprawling four-hour assemblage. It's a it's a, it's an attempt at a at a cut for for a feature film. Yeah, and, it's, and um, yes, I've seen it. Okay, uh, you've also directed this uh, documentary called "The Big Uneasy" about mm-hmm. Hurricane Katrina, which is super interesting. No, not about Hurricane Katrina. About why New Orleans flooded in two thousand five. Why it flooded? Yes, different which is normally attributed to Hurricane Katrina, but the point of the film was that if News people had stuck around for six months. They would have read the the reports of two independent university-based investigations into the flood, both of which came to remarkably similar similar conclusions. Which was, in the words of the one based at UC Berkeley, that it was the greatest man-made engineering catastrophe since uh, <laughs> uh, the one in Russia. Sorry. Uh, Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl. Yeah. Were there, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the levees are supposed to be four foot wide for every one foot tall, or something, and they're just. Well, you see, the thing is, the to, to get into the, get into the weeds of this, this. Yes, levees are mounds of earth that have to be a certain width and a certain, for each piece of height. But the system was so called because the core, even the Corps of Engineers, which built it, admits that it was a system and name only. Uh, consisted of a lot more than earthen levees. It consisted of levees with uh, walls, c- concrete walls, vertical slabs um, driven into the levees in, at certain places, which had to be stabilized. You can't just drive a concrete slab into a, a berm of earth and have it stand tall. Stabilized, supposedly, by these steel plates, which were then driven into the ground. Part of the problem was that they, did, they weren't driven far enough into the ground because the ground, we're, we're in a swamp here. And so the Corps of Engineers decided, uh, probably to save money, to drive them only 17 feet deep where they just were anchored in muck. And so the walls collapsed when uh, some storm surge uh, approached. But uh, uh, they were told by one of their contractors who was doing the work, these have to be driven at least 60 feet deep to be hitting hard rock be hitting you know anything that's going to anchor them and the core didn't do that so it's it's decisions like that uh and there are multiple decisions like multiple choices where the core of engineers uh, went against the best advice of some of their own people some of the people on the outside and uh all of these decisions resulted in catastrophic flood catastrophic failure of a system that was supposed to be built to protect the new orleans against the maximum probable hurricane ordered by President Johnson after Hurricane Betsy in, in 1965. For the record, you don't think there was any uh, man-made blowing up of... No, that's, that's Spike Lee territory you're in there, sir. Yeah, a lot uh, of people still believe that. I know, and I, I hold Spike responsible for that. <laughs> um, but Spike's from Brooklyn, yeah. and, uh, you know, I'm sure he did a lot of research. Look, the thing is, there was um, a, a Mississippi River flood, totally different event, in 1927, and um, to prevent the city of New Orleans from flooding, the business and, and uh, governmental elite 
decided that the only way to, to uh, prevent the Mississippi's floodwaters from um, devastating the city was to dynamite the levees downriver in Plaquemines Parish. And that's documented, and that did happen. And that's in local lore. <clears throat> and so when people heard this loud noise uh, on the morning of August 29th, uh, 2005, um, it triggered that memory. And it must be the same thing again. It was the sound of a barge uh, that had not been moored properly, crashing into one of the flood walls that was in the process of giving way. And we have a history of taking advantage of poor people and screwing them over anyway, so it's not yes, a... Yes, we do. It's not a lot. Okay, Harry Shear is our guest. HarryShear.com is the place for information. Uh, Tuesday, December 1st, at BAM, with an all-star uh, cast. His wife, Judith Owen, and him have been doing this. It started in their living room and has slowly expanded into a thing with an all-star cast. Paul Schaefer, Artie Lang, Fred Willard, Peter Asher, uh, Olympia Dukakis, Bella Fleck. There's, it's really a huge list. It's Folk- amazing list yeah. and, and, and it there's changed. a lot of people that you've not heard of who will be joining us that you will be walking out talking about uh, walking out uh, afterwards talking about and raving about and it's also a benefit for BAM's music programs in the community and for uh, the Elton John AIDS Foundation because uh, December 1st is World AIDS Day. Yeah, so lots of good reasons to go. And I think, you know, for me, it's important to do stuff uh, starting the day after Thanksgiving to sort of get to feel good about the world and about the season that's coming. It, it's not easy for everybody every year, and I say that seriously. And it's Oh, yeah, uh, and that's the reason why we started doing this party that has grown into the show. It wasn't easy for Judith. She was a a Welsh woman coming to live in California who hated the idea that Christmas was warm and sunny and needed help. <laughs> uh, there's also a Christmas Without Tears EP coming out, and we're going to hear a song called The Best Things, which is just a lovely little song. Yeah, that's Judith. Yeah, it's just lovely. Uh, perhaps you'll hear this live at BAM on December 1st. Yeah, I guarantee it. Uh, tickets are on sale now. Go buy them. There's some links on the playlist for today's program. There's a little YouTube uh, highlight thing. Harry, you're welcome on this program anytime you want. Yes, sir. My pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, and we'll see you Tuesday, December 1st at BAM. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Let's do it again. Buy me an Xbox and feed me some licorice. Tie me in tinsel and sing at my door. Buy me the latest, the greatest in everything. Drown me in chocolate. Well, who could want more? But the best thing is the best. Christmas is you What would I want with a fast car In my drive What would I care without you there Daring, sharing Sitting by my side So write me a story some marzipan Knit me a sweater That I'll never wear I'm like the kid Who plays best With the boxes Prisons are nice But they just Can't compare To the best things To the best things The free and the nicest They come at no price And they're What you remember Every December And the best things It's the best thing Christmas is you.
Shearer from the new album called Can't Take the Hint. He's backed up there by uh, the Fountains of Wayne. And Harry joins us on the program. Good morning, Harry. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, that's a super catchy song. It's just a, kind of what we call here a number one hit song. Uh, <laughs> thank you. From your ears to God's mouth. Oh, no, well, it's, I got that backwards, but thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Fountains of Wayne, it's, they, they're, it's sort of hard not to make a number one hit song when you're backed by them. Everything they do has that perfect middle ground of everything. Uh, they're such a great indie pop band. Uh, they, they, uh, I've been a fan of theirs for a long time, and, and uh, I wrote that song uh, after having been listening to uh, Welcome Interstate Managers in the Car one morning and uh, seeing a, a story in the paper about uh, Madonna signing a deal uh, to push a, a brand of vodka, and the headline said, Madonna joins ranks of celebrity booze endorsers. <laughs> and that phrase just went, write a song about me now, please. And so I was, you know, still had fountains in my head so the song came out that way and then i called them and i said well you inspired me so you got to play on it and they did and you guys have been on uh television stuff doing that song and it's it's a it is sort of a catchy number one hit song in my world uh dr john uh skunk baxter jeffrey foskett all kinds of uh guests on this record can't take the hint uh you are a book writer a actor a musician a very busy guy, uh, and a- as I was sort of reading about your background and things like that, one of the the things that sort of the first thing that 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 uh, amazed me was you were t- you had normal parents. First of all, I think that's important. You they mm-hmm. were civilians as they as they called, and yeah. you're taking piano lessons. And if I got this right, your piano teacher's kid was a child performer, and she decided to become an agent and said, "Harry." You're, you might be right for this. And then very quickly you started getting work. Yeah, that's exactly right. And how old were you? Uh, when I first got my, when I got my first job, I was seven. Amazing. And uh, yeah. one of the first things you did was work with Jack Benny on his radio show. I would assume this is around 1950. I was uh, 53. 53. And this is Jack Benny, who, uh, reputation, I've always heard, nicest guy. Is that true? Yeah, the most brilliant, wonderful guy. Uh, you know, uh, I've said jokingly for many years i've i started in the industry at the top and i've been working my way down ever since but it really was uh the gold standard of show business to work with uh, jack benny it's true uh, people i mean he didn't make enough films to sort of be remembered the way culture remembers people now but he did radio and he did vaudeville and he did films and he wrote books he was sort and of and he did television for many years right he was like you um, sort of and yeah and uh if, if only I could be like that. And uh, I, I would recommend to anybody who wants to see what it was he did uh, in probably the most relevant and certainly, uh, 
I think the greatest film he made uh, was a film made during World War II called To Be or Not to Be. Mel Brooks made, did a remake of it a few years back. But uh, the original is an, is an utter classic about how to make a comedy about the most serious stuff in the world at the time that the most serious stuff in the world is actually going on, not years later, but right in the middle of it. And never be in bad taste, but never be afraid to... Uh, you know, pull the trigger on the comedy as well. It was, it's a brilliant, brilliant movie. Yeah, I've seen that movie. It's a, it's a it's a number one hit movie. Yeah, it's great. He and and the, that show was filled with very funny people, great actors. The radio show and, and yes. it, it, it still holds up today. And I, did they treat you just like, hey kid, you're one of the cast, welcome? Uh, the third show I did for him, you know, after I'd kind of proved myself, he came out afterwards, gave me a great big hug. And uh, gave me a transcription, a recording of the of the show that we'd just done, and that was sort of my way of saying being welcomed into the uh, into the into the club. And I was there for the next eight years. Yeah. Wow! And how much did you get for that transcription on eBay? <laughs> if I could find it, uh, millions. But uh, you know. Uh, we've moved so many times, I'm not sure I know where it is at this point. Uh, 1953, you're in Abbott and Costello Go to Mars. I have not seen it. Are you in scenes with Abbott and Costello? I'm in one scene at the very beginning of the movie. You can skip the rest of the movie <laughs> and just see the first scene. I'm in it with Costello. And what was that like? It was like a day's work. I mean, he's not shooting up heroin, or there's no you know other side to the story. No, no. I mean, you know... Um, I had a, a really charmed life as a kid in show business. Uh, I mean, I, I remember there was one gig. I don't even remember what it was, but it was some television thing at uh, a, a local station in Los Angeles, and they were working me too long, and they they weren't you know being nice. And my mom said, "Well, we're never working for them again." And that was about it. Everything else was. Uh, pretty much the coolest experience you could have in show business. Yeah, it's true. The track record for being a child actor really is pretty terrible. I mean, there's great examples <laughs> of, of both sides, of people who have, have normal lives, but there seem to be, uh, you know, it's like dentists killing themselves. For some reason, it really goes bad often. Uh, 1967-68, you were a high school teacher, briefly. Uh, why didn't that work out? Uh, I don't think I fit in a bureaucratic system. <laughs> and that's still the case, I, isn't I, it? I, I quite loved teaching school and uh, kept in touch with a lot of my students for years afterwards. But um, public school, at least at that time, was a pretty bureaucratic system. And if you wanted to do things even slightly differently, uh, you were branded as a troublemaker right away. And to tell you the truth, I am a troublemaker, so they had me pegged right. Well, perfectionist or troublemaker depends what side of the coin you're, you're sort of looking at. Uh, but do, had you made a, a conscious decision, I'm not going to be in show business, I'm going to be normal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought I was going to be in government or, or uh, journalism or, or teaching. Those were the three things I was looking at. And so I gave each of them a try and then thought, are you kidding me? And scampered back into show business. Huh. Uh, you, you start in this uh, group called the Credibility Gap, which sort of starts sort of like the onion of its time, sort of a mm -hmm. semi-sarcastic news, but sort of real also. And a lot of people that you meet in those days become sort of the core that's still the core today. And you end up uh, co-writing the film Real Life, which is one of everybody's favorites. And you work with Martin Mull on Fernwood Tonight, one mm -hmm. of everybody's favorites. You're, you're with everybody's favorite often. Uh, and, and you're sort of uh, with this great group of guys that all came up at the same time to sort of become the next thing. And I think right around that time, the late 60s, early 70s, 
there were still those kind of old school comics and comedy was still this old idea of, you know, take my wife, please type of jokes. And it needed something new. Could you guys feel that in the air? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the idea was uh, to try to move uh, comedy beyond just joke, 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 laugh every 10 seconds or you're dead. Uh, that was, I think, in the minds of, of a lot of people that I was around at that time. And, uh, you know, to me, that's still uh, an interesting thing to aim for. I mean, for example, in the Christopher Guest movies, you see that same aesthetic playing out in a very different way. Um, but, you know, Chris is not standing off stage, uh, out of camera range as we were doing those movies with, a, you know, watch seeing, you know, gee, we didn't have a, a joke that, you know, and spend 10 seconds. Uh, <laughs> we're allowed the room and the trust to sort of play those scenes as they come. Uh, they're all improvised, and uh, he's he's got the calmness and the trust to believe that something funny will happen <laughs> eventually, and that he's, a, he's in charge of the editing so he can make it eventually happen whenever he wants. But it is that sense that... Um, you know, comedy had been in that very uh, tight straitjacket of joke, 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 and that there were other ways to be funny and other modes of funniness that had not yet been explored. And, and we all, I think, thought it was uh, that was our playground. If you guys go to Cantor's or wherever you go to get a Kanish or whatever, who's the funniest guy off the screen? Is it the same dynamic or are some, some people funnier off than on? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, a guy I know here in New York is, uh, I mean, he's also funny, um, when he performs, but he's basically a behind the scenes guy more often than not. He's a writer. And I think anybody who knows him knows he's one of the funniest people in the world. Uh, uh, his name is Tom Leopold. And when you, you hang with him, you know that your ribs are going to ache and your throat <laughs> is going to be sore from laughing. Uh, recent convert there are, Tom Leopold, right? Pardon? Recent convert. I believe he just changed religions. That's correct. Uh, he was a, a comedy partner at one time of Christopher Guest, who I think fairly qualifies as the opposite. I mean, Chris is a very serious person off screen, and yet he's you know amazingly funny when he's a performer. So there's no you know hard and fast rule about how it works. Who's the funniest person who was ever in show business? Do you think not whether you've met them or not? Ever in show business? Yeah, I mean, who? God. That's, I mean, so many people make me laugh. I, I'd be hard-pressed to say one of them is at the top. I mean, everybody from Peter Sellers to uh, Rodney Dangerfield, you know, uh, to Chris Rock to Martin Short to Catherine O'Hara to uh, 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 Jennifer Saunders over in the United Kingdom and Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant today. Uh, I mean, there's so many people that make me laugh. And when I was a kid, I thought the funniest people in the world were Bob and Ray. <laughs> they and were they still funny. make me laugh. Yeah, they're still funny. Uh, my parents used to listen to them on W O R. Yeah, there oh, yeah. Are, there are certain people who are just born with a lot of funny. They just can't help. You know, like Jerry Lewis. I think he, he just couldn't he couldn't be serious for more than a couple of minutes under any unless it was in a telethon, <laughs> right? And and then with the lozenge and everything, yeah, <laughs> Jerry. Yeah, I I think that was an imaginary lozenge, but. Uh, I just love Jerry. Actually, I've got tickets to see Jerry on April 3rd. He's coming to New Jersey, and I'm... Really? Oh, cannot wait. What's, he doing? Seen, What's he doing? He, I'm sure he does the same sh the same show. I've seen it over the years, you know, every 10 years or so, I've gotten to see Jerry, and, you know, he shows some clips, he dances, he sings, he makes, he takes some questions. Uh, he says, well, if you, if you see him, I'd be very interested. You know, to me, the, the, the proof that we have no... That the, the thing called... Uh, entertainment journalism is dead. Uh, 
is the fact that now a year and a half later, we still don't know why the Muscular Dystrophy Association fired him from his own telethon. I couldn't agree more. There's clearly more to the story, and there's, no it's, kidding. it's been hinted about, but is, yeah. is there an event? Is there just a disagreement? It was, it was, it was handled so gracelessly and so publicly. Um, and, you know, you'd think somebody in Hollywood who, who has a press pass would be nosing into this because it, it's a... Whatever it is, it's a, it's a great story. It's true. You know, it's funny. There's a on the very other side of the same story. There's another. I, Jerry has never said why he picked muscular dystrophy. I, it's kind of a, one of these one of the only secrets in Hollywood. That, yeah, on both. Yeah. Of, I'm sure the, the the two might be related. And why isn't the day the clown cried out on DVD? These, <laughs> well, yeah, that's all other question. These are the three things. Uh, do you think that just talk politics for a second? Is the is this is the nation getting crazier or less crazy? We're which way is the meter going? Um, to me, I think the nation is getting, uh, before you can get crazy, you have to get stupid. And I think we're, we're so badly informed right now that uh, you can't blame us for going crazy. Um, the best example going on would be this whole discussion of the fiscal cliff, which is based on uh, a fallacy that, oh my God, we're running out of money and we're, we're, we're indebting our grandchildren. What are we, you know, and... The fact of the matter is that uh, a country that uh, prints its own currency um, can never run out of money. They'll just you can, ease some you can more. Print too much, uh, perhaps, but you can yeah. never run out. You can never def- we can never default. And so this whole thing is based on a fantasy uh, that's been sold to the American people uh, really well, and both parties have bought into it. So there's nobody around to go. Wait a minute. <laughs> so I just went. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, it's not not loud enough. This whole record, your whole new record called "Can't Take a Hint," is touches on a lot of topical subjects. Like we said, mm-hmm. with a lot of interesting um, different styles of music and different folks you recorded this with, and uh, it's sort of a subtle way. Are there people that don't get it that just think these are pop songs? You know, uh, my wife is a, a, a wonderful musician, and uh, she said when we first got together, and she found out that I had a a penchant, or as she likes to call it, penchant for doing funny songs. She said, yeah, it's, it's okay. I hate I hate funny music usually because it's not music. So if you're going to do it, try to make it as musical as possible. So yeah. with those words ringing in my uh, in my head, I've, I've tried to, to be, be true to that. So if people just like the songs, that's fine with me. If they then listen two or three times more and, and oh, that's what it's about. That's cool, too. That's interesting. Uh, Harry Shearer is our guest. I want to remind you, Amy Rigby and Reckless Eric join us about an hour from now. And Harry has a gig tomorrow at the City Winery in New York City in his new record called Can't Take the Hint. Now, if you're my age, I'm 48, you've seen Spinal Tap more than once. Or at least you've seen it once all the way through and you've seen bits of it. I guarantee you every single person my age around is in the same boat. I guarantee it, hundred percent. Do mm. people in their twenties have? Is that movie still a giant thing? Yeah, I mean, I can only tell. Come in. Sorry, I'm in. A, 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 uh, I can only tell you by my experience that uh, I'm still running into kids all the time who, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm talking about teenagers who say, you know, I'm in a band and we learned what not to do by watching your movie. So <laughs> it turns out to be an educational film. What was the budget of that movie? It was around $2 million, and um, just a, a little instruction into the way Hollywood works. Uh, it, uh, what we're told is it still hasn't become profitable. <laughs> well, that answers my next question. Is that really true? 
That seems hard to believe. Well, it's really true that that's what we're being told. Yes, indeed. Um, um, I think um, there was a, a a lawsuit a few years back uh, uh, around a movie called Coming to America that uh, actually succeeded for a while in uh, opening uh, a little bit of the door into the way uh, the idea that the most creative thing that goes on in Hollywood is the accounting. <laughs> Yeah, I think Art Buckwald actually got money, which that's, is that's right, which is an amazing. Uh, but you know, the reason he got money is because uh, the case was heading towards a point where Paramount Pictures was going to have to open its books, and uh, mm. you know, there is there is no greater nightmare in Hollywood for a studio than oh my God, we have to open the books. So yeah. they very quickly said, "How much do you want? Goodbye." Yeah, um, let's talk about Saturday Night Live for a minute. Uh, you 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 were on the, for thirty seconds. Thirty, that's fine. <laughs> you were on the show twice. Uh, at least in two times, you were part of the the cast, or or, mm-hmm. or, or maybe not the cast. Part of yes, the, I was the crew. Well, yes, but they they told you they told some people you were just a writer, which is yes. Well, they 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 hired me as a cast member, and then they told the rest of the cast that I was hired just as a writer. Just one of the cute little things that goes on there. Uh, I I've seen the show a couple weeks ago. I saw a, a little. You know, my wife and I were watching a movie, and when it ended, that show was on, so we watched some of it. And I'm so sorry. I was amazed that the very first sketch, and I said this on the air a couple weeks ago after after we saw I was amazed how unfunny the very very first sketch was and I was also amazed how the the idea that people learn their lines is absolutely not even an idea in that show anymore everybody reads badly off cue cards and it's less funny when you're not looking at the person you're trying to be funny towards well yeah you're not reacting I mean that's been the 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 rule of the show uh, at least since I was there the first time um and, and there's, a, there's a reason for it. Um, so many sketches are put into the production process, uh, way more than are actually aired, that uh, you'd be a fool to, to invest the commitment in memorizing because two-thirds of the things you memorize would never be produced. So um, the, the decision to, pr- to, over, to put too many sketches into the process uh, just convinces everybody not to commit. And you and I agree that that's wrong. <laughs> I think it's wrong. Why not I think just commitment? I think commitment. Um, I, I learned this from from working with Albert Brooks, uh, who was a, an amazing, funny person in the especially in the seventies and the eighties. And uh, the 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 thing that he brought to me, uh, to my eye, uh, to his work, more than anything else. I mean, he was incredibly funny and very witty and very uh, physically adept as a comedian, but he brought this monstrously powerful sense of commitment to whatever he did, and it just forced you to believe it, forced you to buy it, because it, he was so totally committed to it. And what you're seeing on and on that show is uh, kind of the opposite, you know? It's in, I totally agree. It's also any comedy, any performance of any kind, to me, is always more interesting if the audience isn't a bunch of sheep you know if there's a little bit of a challenge to the audience and vice versa i don't like a rude audience or an audience that is is above laughing but it seems these people are going to laugh no matter what happens and then it's then it's hard to know what's there's no baseline whatsoever uh it's one fun one story one interesting saturday night live story just a 30 second story do you have one um wow well trying to think of a funny story i mean uh you know to me the, the the strangest and funniest thing that happened there the second time i went in was i was 
I'd been in L.A. watching the Olympics and was just walked in uh, in August, you know, still full of outrage about the the synchronized swimmers getting the same gold medals as what I called the real athletes. And everybody said, no, oh, come on. By the time we go on the air, people have forgotten about the Olympics. And I said, I don't think they will. And we can keep that from happening. And uh, so Chris and Marty Short and I uh, did this sketch called about male synchronized swimmers. And um, probably the best week of my life ever at Saturday Night Live because Marty and I got to say every day, we have to leave the building. We have to go rehearse in the pool. <laughs> I remember that sketch. Uh, I was listening this morning to it. Must have been something I said, or a CD that came out a few years ago on Rhino. Mm-hmm. And uh, you do a spot-on impersonation of Dick Clark on this uh, CD. I mean, it's spot-on in a way that is almost frightening. You know, it, it, there was something. <laughs> Thank just, you. It was some, how, how when you do an impersonation, how do you how do you develop it? Is there is it a big process, or is it just open your mouth and it comes out? Dick Clark comes um, out. You know, there there are people I've tried to, to capture over the years without success. Uh, most notably, to my great frustration, Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> but um, no, people that I can do are people that just sort of pop out, and, and I suddenly discover, well, there there he is. Um, but uh, I do have a, a cute story about that in terms of Dick Clark. I, I did an impression impersonation of him on a television show and. And on ABC, as it turns out, and I got a note from him uh, the day after it aired saying, uh, you know, I uh, I saw your impression of, and he puts his own name in quotes, Dick Clark, um, <laughs> but I realized that you were not really doing me. You were doing a guy I grew up watching on television. I, and I, I, this may not make any sense to you, but if you want to talk to me about it, give me a call. <laughs> and so I called him up and he said, did that, did you understand what I meant at all? I said, yeah, Arthur Godfrey. He said that's absolutely right. So sometimes huh. you figure out people by doing who they're doing. Interesting. Wow, that's mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, Dick Clark, he was just from a different time. I mean, that's over. Dick Clark is over now. Uh, well, tell me the biggest waste of money you've ever seen on a Hollywood movie set. Wow. You've, and you've been in um, a lot of movies, a lot of real Hollywood movies. Yeah, um... I, I can't say waste of money because you really don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I was amazed, and this turned out to be, you know, an amazingly good movie, so I can't say that any money on it was wasted, but uh, every time Jeff Goldblum and I would would jet in to do another couple days' work on the right stuff, there'd be a wholesale change in the in the personnel of the movie, and uh, I'm I'm so kind of naive that whenever I hit a movie set I think wow everybody's having a really good time here and then I find out two days later that they're you know they're at each other's throat um, so there was just a lot of tumult behind the scenes and you know I'm sure that people had to be paid off to leave and all sorts of things like that and, and as I say you don't know what or I didn't know I wasn't privy to what's going on so to me it was just wow another producer another assistant director hmm. huh. but I mean I just saw that movie it, it had an anniversary showing in Hollywood a couple of years ago, and I, I went to see it with everybody who was still around from that picture. And I was just amazed how much better it was even than I remembered it at the time. So, you know, they must have been doing something right. Who knows? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes money is, is the answer. Uh, I believe that you live part of the time in New Orleans now. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's my, that's my base at this point. Where do you eat there? What's the pl- Where do you eat? <clears throat> where don't you eat? Um, I mean, it's just... A, the thing about New Orleans is, is it is a feast for all the senses and certainly for the taste buds. Uh, you know, if I start giving you a list, uh, Bayona, Nola, 
Cochon, Herb Saint, uh, 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 Lillette, uh, 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 Mobar, Bistro. I mean, uh, uh, Giacomo's. Uh, just uh, you know, I can I can name restaurants from now until you're off the air. Did you it, gain weight? A, a since, wonderful place to eat. Did you gain weight since you moved there? I don't gain weight there because I play basketball. So and uh, and I don't eat lunch. Those are my two kind of ways of staying within the parameters. Uh, how presenta- uh, the parameters of presentability <laughs> of getting still working, uh, not playing the fat guy. Yeah. How long have you been on The Simpsons? As long as there's been a Simpsons. How many years? Twenty-four years. Hundred. Yeah, twenty-four years. Uh, is it? Do you still, or did you ever? I believe you did. Do you still sit around and do the show together? Not as much as we used to, because I'm, you know, for me, I'm I'm doing a lot of other stuff. I've, I spent the last three months doing a, a television series in, in Great Britain that's going to air next year, and so, uh, you know, I, I can't be sitting around with everybody else when I'm uh, twelve thousand miles away. Uh, and Hank goes off and does movies as well, uh, and you know, I do musical things, and so it's it's you can't keep not doing anything else for 24 years <laughs> yes uh is it is it fun is it still fun i mean i haven't really seen a full episode in a couple of years at least is it is it good now what where is it on the good scale well you know i think that's up to the viewer uh to me it's still fun to do you know the reason that i found it fun in the first place above everything else and the, the reason i decided to do it is i'd always passed up uh, offers to do television series because i didn't want to be in the position of just doing one character every week. And, you know, what The Simpsons offered me then and now is the opportunity to do 10, 12, 15 different characters on a show. Um, and I'll open a script and never know who I'm playing that week. So, you know, I, I have such a low fret threshold for boredom that um, that was my main criterion, and, and, and that's still fun. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, com is your website. You and your wife, Judith Owen, who's also a singer-songwriter, uh, are doing this... A, fabu- a fabulous singer-songwriter. A fabulous. Very good. Uh, you are doing a, 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 a mini-tour, and they are all benefits for the New Orleans Musicians Assistance Foundation, and tomorrow night in New York City at Cine Winery, Tuesday the 4th in Chicago, L- uh, Evanston, at a place called Space in Los Angeles, on the 14th at Largo at the Cornet Theater, and then finally... Finally, December 19th, back home in New Orleans at the Contemporary Arts Center. But Sunday, right here in New York City, uh, these are benefit shows. What will they be like? What will folks see if they come down? Yeah, the one in New York is benefit for the New York Actors Fund ah. to, uh, for Sandy Hurricane Sandy Relief. Um, these are uh, basically uh, shows that Judith has been doing, and I, I assist her. They're, they're holiday sing-alongs, which sounds frightening, but... Um, <laughs> They're basically designed to deal with uh, the anxiety and stress that people feel in the holiday season. Uh, so we gather our musical friends in whichever city we perform. Uh, last year we did it in London as well. And we do, uh, each each artist does a couple or two or three of their own pieces. They can be serious, they can be funny, they can anywhere in between, reverent or irreverent. Uh, I'm premiering my own new uh, Christmas song this year, uh, When Santa Claus Went to Guantanamo Bay. Um, and we have uh, the amazing Henry Butler, uh, New Orleans-born uh, uh, giant of the piano, uh, who's currently residing in Brooklyn. Who's just—you uh, will be stupefied by his what he does on the piano. Uh, and we have uh, Adam and Chris from Fountains of Wayne as well, and uh, some other special guests uh, who are so special I can't even be named. And then uh, after all, everybody does their, their two or three 
pieces. Judith uh, and Judith does some wonderful Christmas songs as well, both funny and and poignant. And then Judith forces the audience to sing Christmas carols and gives stupid prizes. <laughs> it sounds ideal. Uh, that is Sunday night at the City Winery right here in New York City, which is a very adult place to see a show. If you've never been there, you actually get to sit in a seat and, uh, <laughs> you know. You, that sounds so luxurious these days, it, it? Uh, I, I used to be one of those guys who would get there, you know, at doors and uh, wanted a good spot, and now I just can't do that anymore. I just can't, mm. no matter how much. Uh, I still do it, actually. I've done it recently for Fountains of Wayne, as a matter of fact. They're good. Well, that sounds like fun. That is uh, Sunday at uh, City Winery, and folks can check out com for all the dates if you live in Chicago or L.A. or New Orleans. And you've also got this brand-new record called Can't Take a Hint. You really are a busy guy. What is there anything? Do you have a, an actual or, or mental list of things to do before I... I die because you've written books and you've directed movies and you're working on a TV show and what is there things you you know do you want to do paintings like Tony Bennett or no no I have no talent for that whatsoever neither uh, does Tony but you know <laughs> well <laughs> neither did Red Skelton John Kel- um, I, uh, I do have a musical a comedy about uh, the life of J. Edgar Hoover the love life of J. Edgar Hoover that uh, we're trying to get made that's sort of my passion of the moment uh, and you know, uh, just I like to keep doing stuff. I mean, I'm, I, I have this great uh, privilege of having a job that I love, so I just want to keep doing it. Uh, you know, I want to ask you. I heard you on Howard Stern's show a couple months ago, and I could tell that Howard was somebody you really liked. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he's. I think he likes me. Um, uh, and uh, he was very nice to me, and I, I really liked him. Yeah. Uh, so I've got this song called Joe the Plumber queued up now from the new record called mm-hmm. Can't Take a Hint. Uh, and it is an amazing, it's a great distillation of what's wrong with everything right now, Joe the Plumber. Because yeah. You can turn the TV on and hear just absolute nonsense. I mean, unfettered nonsense. I don't know if you saw this. Actually, I, there's a link to this uh, on the playlist to today's program, and it's an article where somebody looks at the graphics that are broadcast on Fox News and points out why they make no sense. You know, they, <laughs> the way the, the graphics are put together, often they'll show a pie chart where the, the pieces don't add up to 100%, <laughs> or, or where they're showing the rate going up, but the numbers are actually going down, but the cur- the curve is physically going up, even though, you know, the job... <laughs> it's mm-hmm, an, and mm-hmm. it's, but, but because people are so dumb, or... Be- or well, well, I think, you know, what Joe the Plumber is really about, aside from a guy who uh, became famous for a minute and was not named Joe and wasn't a plumber, um, which is its own uh, yeah, set of contradictions. Yeah, it's perfect. The, the recurrent fantasy in America that all we need to do to solve our problems is to apply a little bit of good old-fashioned common sense. You know, um, common sense has become an adjective in politics. We need some common sense solutions. And, uh, you know, you just have to think, did common sense get us to the moon? I don't think so. <laughs> when the guy, you know, when you're going in for brain surgery, does, does, does your heart leap up when the guy says, you know, I didn't do too well in medical school, but I got a lot of common sense on my side. <laughs> um, it's just such a, 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 but we keep falling for it. So Joe the Plumber, is to me, is like the avatar of common sense and all that's wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
did did you ever think you might you said earlier you would be in government i mean did you think you you might have been in politics no i worked at the state legislature of california for a year and that totally disabused me of that idea have you ever met a president yeah i met uh let's see i've met uh carter i met george h w bush i've met bill clinton twice uh that would be the limit and what are those guys like uh well, Clinton is, uh, you know, just incredibly charismatic, um, partly because he has this either gift or drive, I can't tell which, to uh, when he's meeting a person, you know, uh, to just act. Uh, I don't know if it is an act, but to, to, to act as if that is the only person in the room and he is utterly fascinated with you at that moment. And uh, when he shines that light, uh, it, it, it's just uh, incredibly charismatic. Um, George H. W. Bush, I just met at a, at a Christmas party at the White House, and it was, you know, I, I can quote exactly what he said: "Hey, Merry Christmas to you." Um, <laughs> and, and Carter, I just shook his hand, so I have no real feeling for who those guys are or, or what they were like. But I mean, I've seen Clinton socially at a couple of uh, occasions, and I just was amazed by that thing. That he does. Uh, I mean, how? And in in all seriousness, what can we do to fix the in, all the problems of the world? <laughs> well, in all seriousness, yeah. you better talk to somebody more serious than me. <laughs> um, you know, um, I'd read more. <laughs> Start with that. Uh, uh, that would be my two word advice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, from uh, Harry Shearer's new record called Can't Take a Hint. The song is called Joe the Plumber, and Harry is playing tomorrow with his lovely, fabulously talented singer-songwriter wife, Judith Owen, and special guests, some too famous to to, uh, to name. You have to add it to the shopping cart to see the, uh, the price. Uh, it's the Judith Owen and Harry Shearer's holiday sing-along, and it's uh, benefiting the New York Actors Fund and the... Uh, what is it? The New Orleans Assistance Musicians Assistance Foundation, uh, and information on all this is at harryshear.com. Harry, it's been totally fascinating. What an interesting life you've had. It's uh, thank you, man. It's mind blowing. It. Do you do you feel like a lucky guy every day? Of course I do. I mean, and anybody who has any success in show business who doesn't attribute about ninety percent of it to luck is lying to themselves. <laughs> all right, terrific. Have a great day. Have a great gig tomorrow, and Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. Bye. your income grow. Go ask Joe the Plumber. If you've got questions about the size of the debt, or how come only banks got the safety net, if your query hasn't been answered yet.